Good morning. Our text today is going to be in Mark chapter 3, continuing in our series from last week. We'll start with verse 7. Before I start, I just want to, I'm, I'm thankful that we heard a guitar this morning. So uh, if you're thankful with me, make sure we thank our guitarist later today for his return. Let's read Mark 3, verses 7 through 21. The word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we receive your word this morning, Lord, as we consider these people that are gathered to see the Christ, help us, Lord, to examine ourselves. Help us to examine why it is that we gather to see the Christ, to hear him. Help us to examine whether we love him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started in verse 7, and Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and it says a great crowd is following Jesus. I wanted to find out more about this crowd. Does this just mean that Jesus drew a crowd at some point, and it was the same crowd of people kind of following him around all over the countryside? Not really. I went down this rabbit hole and, and I really kind of nerded out on the Greek language for a little bit. 
I even read a doctoral dissertation on first century Greek words for crowd. Uh, I'm not going to make you suffer through that. But if you're interested, come talk to me afterward, because I thought it was fun. So if you think that's fun, you're probably like me. I'll spare you all the details, but when being used merely to describe a large number of people, this word is plethos for crowd. It's plethos. And it's interchangeable with another word used for crowd, and it's the same word that is used when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. And we know from that account that it was only the number of men being recorded. So in actuality, there may have been 10,000 to 20,000 people in that crowd. And so we can understand that these crowds were really large crowds of people. The way this is written is not really describing a particular event, but more a season of time. It's talking in a generality about this season of Jesus's ministry. Not a particular crowd in a particular town on a particular day, but rather describing that Jesus was constantly drawing a crowd everywhere he went. People from the whole country and even neighboring countries were coming to see him. So when we add this layer to our understanding, we're not just talking about one day he went out by a lake and a few hundred people from the local town followed him there. No, we're talking about over the course of weeks and months, tens of thousands of people, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people, coming to see Jesus from all over the place. And on any given day, the specific crowd for that day could have numbered in the thousands or even tens of thousands. So what do we conclude from that? The language and the context tell us that all kinds of people were coming to see him. All kinds of people. Not just poor people. Not just sick people. But people from all walks of life. We see this throughout the gospel accounts all over the place, right? Rich people, centurions, Romans, tax collectors, professionals, prostitutes, scribes who want to believe in him, scribes who don't want to believe in him, sick people, injured people, demon-possessed people. Everyone and their mother, too, is a fitting phrase. The text also goes out of its way to tell us the geographical area from which all these people are coming. Sometimes we gloss over these things, but God doesn't include anything in his word without reason. So let's take a closer look at that geographical area. Why did he include this? I'm not going to put a map up on the screen, but I will describe it to you. Verse 7 says a great crowd, and now we understand this to mean not just one crowd, but constant crowds every day. And then it says, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. This is a huge geographical area, about 200 miles tall and 100 miles wide, something like 20,000 square miles. If you have a study Bible, it might have a map in the back, and it'll show you an area of Jesus' ministry, and you can look at that map to show you what I'm talking about. If you don't have a map like that and you want to imagine it in our local area, think of coastal California all the way from the top of Los Angeles County to the bottom of San Diego County and going about 100 miles inland. And that's about the size of the area that we're talking about. Those first couple locations mentioned, 
Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, we're familiar with those. But you might have seen the word Idumea and thought, I never heard of that place. Well, you have, actually. Idumea is actually just Edom. Idumea, Edom. Idom, Edom. See it? So the people that live there mostly aren't Jews. They're the descendants of Esau, the long-distant cousins of the Jews. And then there are people coming from beyond the Jordan, which is the very outskirt of Jewish land to the east. And then up north we have Tyre and Sidon, which are not related to the Jews at all, well beyond the northern border of Israel. The Jews were meant to conquer those pagan cities, by the way, Tyre and Sidon, when they entered the land with Joshua all those years ago. But at the time, they thought that the cities were too well fortified. So they were afraid and they didn't conquer them. And for the next 1,500 years or so, those two cities were a thorn in the side of the Israelites, causing them constant trouble. So we understand that from this large area, all kinds of people from all walks of life are coming to see him, and not just Jews, but Gentiles too. In John chapter 12, the Pharisees go so far as to say, the whole world is coming out to see him. And why were they coming to see him? Verse 9 in our text tells us it was because they had heard what he was doing. What was he doing? In Matthew's parallel account, in chapter 4, verse 23, it says, He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. So they heard that he was preaching the kingdom of God and healing the sick. So think again about this geographical area. It's basically a big rectangle. This area of Galilee where Jesus is ministering is pretty close to right in the middle of that area. So people are coming to see him from upwards of 100 miles away, if you think about that. Now, when we hear 100 miles away, that doesn't sound like a big deal to us, does it? Why not? Because we have cars. We drive 100 miles all the time, no big deal. It's a couple hours. Well, they didn't have cars. What did they have? Walking on foot. They were walking on foot or they were maybe riding an animal if they could afford one. So let's think about this for a few minutes. For a healthy person, walking 100 miles on a dirt road, how long does that take? Go ask Carl. He can tell you. I can tell you for me, it would take me about a week, maybe a little bit less, if I'm feeling good. Now, wait a minute. We said this is a week-long journey. That's for a healthy person. It says that many of these people who were coming to see him had diseases. When we say diseases, it's not talking about a common cold or a sprained ankle or a mild ailment that goes away given time and proper nutrition. No, the word for diseases translates as an affliction. An affliction. The King James even calls it plague. To get a better sense of what these people were dealing with, this is the same word used in Mark 5 to describe the woman who had the issue of blood. We'll see more about her when we get there in our sermon series later. 
But what we want to understand today is that this word disease is describing a debilitating, crippling, lifelong, long-term condition. Things that don't go away on their own. Some of us have these things right now, right? Cancer, diabetes, fibromyalgia, severe arthritis, etc. But again, we have an advantage, don't we? We have modern medicine. It helps us with symptom mitigation. It helps prolong our life. But these people don't have any of that. In an agrarian society, a society where they produce from the land and they fish, people who have a debilitating illness have a hard time working. They have a hard time working. Nowadays, when we get sick, if we have an office job, we might still be able to work. Or we even have disability insurance, right? Can you imagine doing physical labor like fishing or carpentry or keeping animals or harvesting a crop, taking it to the market to sell while you have a debilitating disease, a lifelong crippling condition? We see many people like this in the Bible. Sometimes they're beggars or outcasts, socially ostracized. Like Bren was telling us a few weeks ago, their neighbors often thought they must have some great sin that God was punishing them for. And that's why they were sick. One of the translations of this word for disease even means scourging. The same word for the lashes received as punishment when you were a criminal. So we were considering that it would take a healthy person a week to make this journey. Plus or minus. A person with a debilitating disease, do you think it would take them the same amount of time or longer? Longer, thank you. <laughs> now consider that while they're making this journey, if they have a business back at home, they can't attend their farm, they can't go fishing, they can't sell things in the marketplace. Don't forget, there's a trip home too. So add another week or two for the return trip. Maybe longer. And add the expectation that they won't earn any income for two weeks to a month while they're gone. Now here's something we can relate to a little better. How many of us have room in our budget to not work for a month? When we see other examples of these crowds, like in a couple chapters when Jesus feeds the 5,000, we know that there weren't just men. There were women and children too, even sometimes young children. Anyone who has kids or spent a lot of time caring for kids, can you imagine trying to bring your kids on a week-long, 100-mile journey on foot? You know, there's a lot of risks on the road, too. Highway robbers, wild animals, injuries, bad weather, lack of accommodations. You've got to bring food and water with you. At least some. I want this to come across clearly. Have you put yourself in their shoes yet? Are you starting to get the picture? Some of these people left for this journey to see Jesus at extreme peril to themselves. To go on such a journey could be an event that would alter the course of a person's life or their family's life forever. So what's motivating them? We know some of them were sick and wanted to be healed. We also know that Jesus had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. What have we been learning about the religion of the day? We've been beating up the scribes and Pharisees a lot lately. 
Lord willing, David is going to beat them up some more next week. The leaders were self-important, self-righteous, completely missing the point of God's law, using it to inflate and elevate themselves, not caring for the people, and neglecting what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In the religion of the scribes and Pharisees, there was no authority in the teaching and no authenticity in the practice. They misused the truth of God and were totally absent of the power of God. So the people that heard about Jesus, they were desperate to experience the power of God and to be healed of their afflictions. They heard about Jesus and they would do anything to see him. They'd risk a long journey, lack of income, friends and family thinking them foolish, highway hazards, health complications. We understand from what we said earlier that it was likely some of them meaningfully risked their lives and their livelihoods. Many, if not most of them, would have never taken a journey like this before. But they were willing to do it for a chance to see him and be healed and for a chance to see authentic power of God. Let's ask a few questions. How many of them were coming to hear his teaching as opposed to the number of those coming to be healed of an affliction? I'm sure there were some. R.C. Sproul hypothesizes that most of them came to see Jesus because of what they thought he could do for them. They were concerned about their illnesses and their bodies. He took the opportunity to minister to their souls, even though that's not why most of them came. Let's put ourselves under the microscope for a second. Why do we come to church? I can tell you why I did for a long time. It was because my family brought me here. And when I was older, because it was my habit. And at times it was because I wanted to see my friends. Or hear my favorite pastor as opposed to hearing the word of God that he was going to bring. I know for some of us, our church is our entire social circle, isn't it? And if we're honest, we're not totally blind to the various opportunities we get by being around other people who come to church. Social opportunities, business opportunities, you name it. None of those are the right reason to come here. We come here to worship Christ and to hear Christ. Not to see our favorite pastor. Not to sing our favorite songs. We come because of Christ. You know, you can come here on Sunday morning and hear the word preached and be together with other people who want to hear from Christ. And not as many of us have these physical ailments that they had, but many of us have spiritual injuries that are not as obvious. When a preacher faithfully expounds the word of God to the people of God during Sunday worship, do you know that that is the same Jesus speaking to his church? And it doesn't cost us very much to get here, does it? And yet we complain about it, don't we? Even if we don't complain out loud where someone else can hear, we complain in our hearts where he can hear. 
It's hard to get up early on Sunday. I'd rather sleep in. It's hard to get the kids dressed and out the door on time. It's inconvenient. I live far away and gas is too expensive. Maybe that wasn't a problem a couple years ago, but sure is now. The thermostat at the church is broken. It's going to be too hot or too cold. I know Carl hears that sometimes. I have to choose between my kids doing well in sports or being at church on Sunday. I'll miss the first half of the football game that I want to watch. My favorite. I don't like the guy preaching this week. He's too intense. Or he's too boring. Or he's not like my favorite pastor that I'm used to. They were sick with deadly diseases, but they traveled a hundred miles on foot in bad weather on rough roads, giving up a month of income, maybe never to return, in the hope that they might experience the power of God and see healing from their affliction. Some of them risked their very lives. Now, I don't want you to be confused. You might be asking, is it wrong for me to want God to do things for me? Is it wrong to ask the Lord to heal me from my afflictions? The answer is definitively, without a doubt, no. It is not wrong to do that. In our very text, would Jesus do something that he didn't desire to do? Of course not. Throughout Scripture, God tells us he delights in healing us and taking away our pain. In fact, he even commands us to pray to him for it. Just a few examples. Exodus 15:26, I am the God that heals you. Jeremiah 17:14, the prayer is, "Heal me, O Lord." Isaiah 57:18, I will heal them and restore comfort to them. Matthew 8, the leper says, "Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean." And Jesus says, I'm willing, and makes him clean. James 5, if anyone among you is sick, call the elders that they may pray for your healing. And in Revelation 21, on the last day, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So it is good, and it's right, for us to ask Jesus for healing in our physical bodies. However, when we ask, we must value and cherish the physician more than the medicine. So how do you value Jesus and his kingdom? Do you value his kingdom rightly? Or do you value what he can do for you more? We have to examine ourselves and ask whether there is anything we value more than our king and his kingdom. If you examine yourself and you find something, ask him to help you remove it. I want to get a few more morsels out of this and then we'll move on to calling the twelve. In verse 9, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. This is a problem we're starting to see over and over in Jesus' ministry. What happened last time there was a big crowd when Paul was preaching? The house was so full 
The guys had to do what? They had to take the roof off to lower their friend in to meet Jesus and be healed. That's how crowded it was. Later on in a couple of verses, it's going to tell us they were pressing in so much that Jesus and the disciples couldn't even eat. So there's just a practical wisdom here in using a boat as a pulpit. This isn't just one time, but rather Jesus is giving a standing order to have a boat ready. Sound carries over water. So they would find a place on the shore that formed a natural amphitheater and put the boat right in the middle. And the people would be able to sit around Jesus and hear him well, even from some distance. There's something a little bit fun here, too. Do you remember a while back when Peter and Andrew, James and John were called away from their fishing business to follow him? What did he promise them back in chapter 1? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's right. Do you think they imagined it would materialize like this? Sitting on a boat with him, surrounded by people who had been drawn there by the potential of physical healing, not knowing that some of them would be totally captivated by his teaching? Probably not. But I bet whenever Jesus would head toward the shore and say, hey guys, go get the boat ready. I'm going to teach. I bet there would be some smiles among those four guys. Fishers of men indeed, Peter would say. Pastor Rob used to call that Christian candy, and I thought it was too much fun to leave out. Let's quickly look at verse 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Demons again. Doing the same stuff as last time, right? We talked about this before. The enemy wants to disrupt Jesus' mission. And one of the ways they want to do that is to broadly reveal his identity before it's time for him to claim to be God's son publicly. But I want to add something from last time. The language doesn't suggest that these demons are going out of their way to find him. And in the other gospel accounts, we understand that people's relatives or friends are bringing the demon-possessed people before Jesus so that they might be released from the demonic oppression. The demons aren't stupid. They are keenly aware that the greatest champion of heaven, the God that they once worshipped, their former master, has come to do battle with them and release the people that they are oppressing. When they see him, they know that their number has come up. So what do they do? They cry out his name again, just like the last one did, in an attempt to exercise some kind of advantage over Jesus and to reveal him before it's time. I see this as a last-ditch effort for them to do a little damage before he commands them to come out and their ability to oppress and speak freely is gone. So what does he do? He makes them be quiet. And we know from the other gospel accounts that he would cast them out and they could no longer stay in the people that they had been possessing. We spent a lot of time in this first section, but I want to get through the calling of the twelve before the end of the day. So let's read verse 13 through 21, and we'll talk about this as our last section. 
And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus the Simon, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Verse 13 says, They went up on the mountain. They went away from the crowd. It was time to take a break from healing and preaching and being surrounded by crowds. It was time to do something special and set apart. So they go up on the mountain and he calls to himself those whom he desired. Think about this for a minute. He desired them. He wasn't settling for these men or making them the best of a bad situation. No, he had a purpose and something specific in mind that he is planning to use them to accomplish, those men. You know, back then, if there was a rabbi or a spiritual leader that you really liked and you wanted to have the privilege to follow them and be their disciple, you'd have to submit an application. You'd have to polish your resume, be able to show why you knew more about the scripture than the other guys trying to get in. You'd have to look good. You probably have to already have those long robes and big phylacteries we talked about before. But Jesus was not your typical rabbi. The Lord loves to use the weak, the outcasts, and the unlikely. He likes to redeem the rough and the unsightly and make it beautiful. So instead of taking applications from the best of the Jews, Jesus calls the ones that he wants. And in this instance, the ones he wants are men who smell of fish. Verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. So just to be clear, they're not apostles yet. Peter lays out in Acts chapter 1 the requirements for being considered an apostle, one of which is that they had seen the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. Jesus hasn't died and been raised yet. But these are the men that Jesus called who would later become apostles. So we understand that even though they are not apostles yet, this is the time of their choosing. Even if their apostleship has not come to full fruition at this point in the story. Let's look a little more. The end of verse 14 says, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And then verse 15, and have authority to cast out demons. Let me remind you that these men were fishermen. One of them was a tax collector before this. We don't know the rest of their professions before Jesus called them, but they probably weren't religious scholars applying to be disciples of the popular rabbis of the day, to say the least. 
They were Jews, and so they were not altogether spiritually ignorant. But they certainly weren't scholars, preachers, and definitely not exorcists. So how is he going to turn these men from rough fishermen into the men who would transform the entire world with the message of the gospel? Men who would cast out demons, pen the very holy words of scripture, and lay the foundations of a religion that would last for thousands of years until his return. The answer is in the word appointed. I can't pronounce the Greek word. I'm not even going to try. You can go look it up later. But it is a fun word. It's used so many different ways, but all of them involve the agency of the person doing the action. When we think of appointed, we think of the object that's appointed. But this appointed points toward the appointer. It might be translated better as he made the 12. He made the 12. He's not merely hiring employees. There weren't a hundred potential apostles and he picked the ones he thought would do the best. There's a change that takes place here. Do you understand this? Before this, there was no group of 12 apostles until he made the 12. This is the same concept Jesus uses to describe when he says God at creation made them male and female. They didn't even exist before. And he made something where there was nothing. There were no 12. And now there is a 12. Jesus made the 12 apostles. Just a little warning here. There were only 12 apostles. 13, counting Paul. If you ever go to a church and you hear a preacher who calls himself an apostle or claims to have an apostolic calling or an apostolic gift, don't stay and listen to them. The apostles were specific men. The Bible tells us who they were. Anyone who claims to be an apostle nowadays is dreadfully confused or they are a wolf among the sheep. Either way, don't listen to them. So what is this apostleship? We know the requirements to be an apostle, but what does an apostle do? Before Pentecost, while they are disciples and not yet apostles, from verse 14 and 15, they're going to do three things. They're going to be with him. They're going to be sent out to preach. And they're going to have the authority to cast out demons. Being with him is pretty straightforward. From the time he called these disciples until the time of his death, these men lived with him and followed him everywhere. They were by his side, other than in the instances where he sent them on ahead or sent them out to preach. Now, they're actually not being sent out to preach or cast out demons yet. That's later on in the story, and we'll see it when we get there. But this is the designated time at which Jesus delegated his authority to them. They're being given spiritual authority here. Can you imagine this? Ordinary men, fishermen, being delegated power and authority from the Son of God himself. There was nothing special about them before this. You know what made them special? He desired them. He chose them. He made them apostles. So often we venerate people. We idolize them even. 
because they seem to have some special gift of God for whatever their ministry is. Often preachers, but sometimes others too. Christian musicians, celebrity pastors, Christian celebrities. Is it the talent or gift that makes them special? Not at all. It's that he chooses and he changes. He equips for his own glory. So let's read who they were. Verse 16 and on. Simon, whom he called Peter, James and John, the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, who we know later as Doubting Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We know a lot about some of these men and not as much about others. If you want to, you can go on your own and study the individual men. And there's, there's uh, devotionals that you can find. I think Grace to You has, has a series on this. We're not going to get into that today. I want to end with verse 20 through 21. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. I'll be honest, I did not find a lot of teaching here. But this is just one of those little details that gives credibility to the story. If this is an uninspired book, being written intentionally by men to start a new religion, do you think they would have left in the part where the hero's family thinks he's nuts and they try to bring him home? We've seen that movie before, right? He's not a religious leader. He's the town carpenter. You can almost see one of the neighbors coming over to the family home with the news and Jesus' brothers hearing about these throngs of people following him around and they go, enough is enough. We humored him when he said he wanted to go out and preach, but this is getting out of hand. It's obvious that he's lost it. Come on, guys, let's go home. Let, let's go get him and bring him home before he embarrasses himself anymore. And Mary, out of love for her son and her eyes not yet being totally open to the plan, going right along with them. I love this because it makes the story real. It's real people. It really happened. You can trust it. How are we going to wrap up today? What I really want you to take away from this is to examine yourself. Are you part of the crowd that wants something from him? He's merciful. He is merciful. And he may grant that to you. But he deserves more than that from you. Even the demons acknowledge him for who he is. Wouldn't you rather be his disciple? Ready to dedicate your life to him? To follow him wherever he goes? Wouldn't you rather be hoping that he would choose you and make you into something new for his purposes and his glory? He can. 
He will. If you ask him to. But there is something in the way. What's it called? Sin. I heard it. Someone said sin. We know what it's called. It's called sin. It's inherited from our father Adam and it's continued by each of us in our own wicked hearts. And we love our sin. We love it more than we love him. If you've never trusted that Jesus lived the perfect life you couldn't live and died the death that you deserved, then believe it now. If you've never known that he now offers, I'm sorry, if you've you've never believed that he rose again on the third day in victory over sin and death, then believe it now. If you've never known that he now offers a new heart to those he desires, to those he desires to make into his disciples, he does. Don't wait. Ask him for one. Ask him to make you his disciple. May you love and obey your good king and his good kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've seen these throngs of people gather to you, as we've seen you call out of them your disciples, Lord, will you change us? Will you cause us to repent of our sin? Will you cause us to glorify you? Will you help us to go away from this place different than we came? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.